electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead on this Friday. It's been a record-setting and head-spinning week for markets, with the Dow hitting new all-time highs. But this morning, New York Fed President John Williams warning not to get carried away with rate cut hopes. We'll ask our market guests what they make of his comments and what the trade is from here. Do you bet on the catalyst or on the concerns? Plus, two screaming buys for 2024 that may surprise you, India and Bitcoin. Our guest insists they're having more than just a moment. He's here to make his case. And if you're worried you missed out on the Home Builder Rally, our guest says, don't fret, there's more upside ahead. He'll tell us just how much he thinks and the two names he's most bullish on. But we begin with the major averages trying to string together seven straight weeks of gains. Fed Chair Jay Powell adding fuel to the rally after Wednesday's meeting, of course. But stocks giving up some gains after New York Fed President John Williams seemed to walk things back a bit on CNBC earlier today. We aren't really talking about rate cuts right now. We're very focused on the the question in front of us, which, as Chair Powell said, the question is, have we gotten monetary policy to a sufficiently restrictive uh, stance in order to ensure that inflation comes back down to 2%? That's the question in front of us. That's what we've been really thinking about for the past five months, and I think we'll be continuing to think about for some time. Joining me now are Ben Corby, co-head of investments at Thornburg Investment Management, and Chris Murphy, co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Welcome to you both. Ben, what do you make of uh, Williams's comments this morning? Uh, hi, thanks for having me on the show. Look, I think if we're able to cut rates and, and avoid a, a recession, uh, this current uh, Fed administration is going to go down in history as one of the most successful uh, Feds uh, of all time. So let's, let's see if we achieve it. But uh, I think it would be a, a great outcome. So why, why is he telling us not to think about that or that they're not thinking about that yet? Just because I think the other side, uh, the left tail, is if we cut too soon and inflation reaccelerates, uh, which is not a 0% risk, then we look a lot like the 1970s. And you go from being a hero um, as a Fed if you achieve a soft landing to being one of the worst uh, Fed presidents over time if you reignite uh, inflation on the other side. Chris, I think it's telling the market action today where we started in the red after those comments, but we fought back into positive territory. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, um, there's enough um, chasing left into the end of the year. You don't want to be underinvested. And, you know, what do we really expect uh, him to say this morning? I think the market Obviously, judging by its reaction earlier this week, maybe got a little bit of ahead of ahead of himself. So, you know, I would expect the next, um, you know, Fed person to come in and, and try to tamp things down a little bit. So really not a surprise at all. I should clarify, too, the Dow and uh, the Nasdaq are positive, the S&P and the Russell are negative for what it's worth. Chris, uh, we're also heading into a big event a couple hours time on the market close. They say it's the biggest option expiration ever. Should I worry about that? Or what is that, an opportunity, a risk, a fact, a a quirk? What? Uh, You know, I think it's more of a non-factor at this point. And the reason being is, you know, we're really concerned. uh, We think that the expiration has a big impact when the market stays 
kind of in the same spot like it did for the second half of November and the beginning of December. And a lot of open interest builds up right around where the market's actually trading. Um, and that was kind of the talking point uh, for a couple of weeks heading up into uh, Powell a couple of days ago. Now we've ripped much higher. So what you have is a situation where much of the open interest, all of the puts, most of the calls are are below where we were trading right now. So they're just not having as much of an impact. Oh, interesting. So because of this market move, maybe it's a little bit less consequential than it would have been otherwise. Chris, let me also ask you just about the, the vigor of the move we've seen. Whatever metrics you prefer to look at, I don't know if you're big on overbought or bull bear consensus or, you know, put call ratios, whatever it is. Do you see signs that were overextended or do you see signs that after a move like this, you want to keep positioning and, and kind of give this rally some credit? Uh, no, we're definitely seeing signs that were overextended. You know, um, with the options talk, we're really looking at uh, the volatility priced into the upside compared to the downside. And that's hit some pretty extreme levels, especially in the small caps. And really, most other times we'd be, you know, saying this is the time to pause. This is the time to reevaluate. But, you know, how often do we go through one of the fastest hiking cycles of all time and then pivot? So that doesn't really, you know, this is not this is kind of a rare time. So some of those normal contraindicators that we will be, you know, banging the table on, we're not really talking about as much right now, because as we know, you know, the commentary out of the Fed and, and a pivot and things like that, that trumps everything. Uh, let's highlight some of those stats that are on your screen, Chris, for the small caps in particular. And this was making the rounds yesterday, but they've gone from the 52-week low to the 52-week high and I think a record period of time. Fastest all time. Now, one thing to keep in mind, too, for all of this year, positioning has mattered so much. And how much have we heard about how you know, all the funds, all the hedge funds, et cetera, they're in the mega cap tech stocks and they basically left the small caps uh, for, for dead. Um, and now all of a sudden we have a situation where we're starting to see the small caps come to life. We've seen the sharpest rally we've seen, I guess, in, in history, if you're looking at that statistic. And, um, you know, we will be looking at the options and we'd be saying, you know, do we know if IWM is going to continue to outperform like it has recently? You no, know, we have no idea. But what we do know is you know, we can set up structures in the options uh, where we're there uh, if it happens, uh, but we're not, you know, the last one in chasing another head fake in the small caps. OK, Ben, what about you guys? How are you thinking about the market after the strength of the move that we've seen? Yeah, it's been a really strong move. So I think there's a Pavlovian response uh, sort of after the after the rate hikes end, the market tends to go up. Well, the the last rate hike was back in July, so we're already you know, four coming on five months past the rate hike. And I think that really uh, drove a lot of stocks higher. That said, I think repositioning portfolios, perhaps away from some of the winners of 2023, it was a very narrow market. We can see that broaden out. And so, you know, maybe trimming some of those winners and putting some capital into some dividend paying stocks. All right. And then all of that said, you know, moments like these, we tend to look back in retrospect and say, oh, yeah, just when everyone thought the coast was clear, you know, another problem was looming. The economic data has been mostly better than expected. Obviously, the signals from the Fed have all helped fuel the rally. Is there anything, Ben, that, you know, it's hard to say, do you expect the unexpected, but do you sense that we will have mean reversion and that some concerns that are perhaps delayed will come back to the fore in the next few weeks? Uh, I think the coast is, is never completely clear. So the right investing approach is to uh, have a margin of safety in your investments. So whether that's a valuation safety or a business model moat, we think it makes a lot of sense to find those companies that have 
durable businesses, durable cash flows, and, and good dividends. All right. I know Schwab, you think, is one of them. Uh, you're part of the, the, the Schwab. There's like a fan base uh, for Schwab at this point, I think. Uh, SK Hynix, Galaxy Entertainment, a couple of global names as well for people to, to sort through if they want to look for some individual names that might have that margin of safety. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there for now. We appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ben Kirby and Chris Murphy. Some of the biggest action this week has been in the bond markets with the 10-year yield plunging and now down more than a full point from its peak above 5% not even two months ago. Let's get out to Rick Santelli. He's at the CME with more. Rick? Yes, it's been a huge week and it's a very exciting day. If you look at an intraday of 10s, look at that spike around 8.30 Eastern. Now, it didn't last long. That spike was... New York Fed President Williams on our very own CNBC with Steve Leisman, and it definitely popped rates periodically. Why? Because he was playing the bad cop. Who was the good cop? Well, that was Jay Powell yesterday, when during the press conference he said, well, really, what this meeting was about is rate cuts. And from that point forward, everything changed. And if you look at a one week of tens, you could really see, well, let's go to the dollar index first. Dollar index popped quite nicely too on John Williams at 830. On a one week of tens, we're down 30 basis points on the week, even though we're roughly unchanged on the day. And Fed fund futures, what do they tell us? Well, they tell us that the next meeting or the next two meetings, that we can try to grapple with defining where the market is, where the Fed is. But one thing I can tell you, today's Fed fund futures generically, let's look at Dees, one year out, it is being much less generous on rate cuts because the price has fallen from its big spike up when Powell yesterday played good cop and then it started to sell off when? Yes, 8.30, when Pres Williams was talking to our very own Steve Leisman. Now, granted, there's still some easy built into next year, but a bit less than there was. And therein lies the strategy kind of asterisk, is that the market is definitely euphoric at this time and a big week. But in the end, it will be about how the data and inflation tamp down in the future and how much bad cop Fed speak we see pushed at us to try to control the optimism in the markets. Back to you. Uh, Rick, I guess, what would you say as we start going through the 2024 outlooks? What are you most hearing in the bond pits about this move? Is it too far too fast or is it, hey, look out below with maybe 3% we start talking about? You know, I don't know if people are going to like or dislike my answer, but I'll tell you, the one thing on everyone's mind is 2024 politics. Now, I'm not saying that the Fed's highly political, but many understand whether it's the Elizabeth Warrens or all the different congressmen that have a huge interest in how the economy turns out, how inflation and Bidenomics and everything going on is going to play out with the election. Listen, everybody's going to be monitoring it and there's going to be a lot of pressure to keep the economy looking good. Will that affect the Fed or the decisions or the votes? That's up to you, but that's what traders are talking about. We know, as Art Cashin was talking about, bullish for equities, and I guess we could say, what would you say, on the margin, bearish for bonds? You know, I would normally say that it would be, but I would be relegated to the longer maturities. I think, indeed, we could argue about timing, but there are going to be cuts coming, and I think the short maturities and the yield curve are going to be in play. Mm. I think the long end with real rates is most likely going to stay on the north side of 4%. 
after the euphoria this move wears thin. All right, we'll have more later on, Rick. For now, thank you very much, our Rick Santelli. And also coming up, Van Eck CEO Jan Van Eck is here in studio with the names he says are a screaming buy heading into 2024. Bonds are not on the list. We will ask him where he sees the biggest opportunities and risks and look at how those 2023 calls turned out. Plus, tis the season for a check on the health of the supply chain. And we've got team coverage tracking the journey of one Care Bear from the factory floor to your local toy store. As we head to break, here's a glance at the markets. Dow has Turn positive by 15 points. NASDAQ's up a tenth. S&P still down six. Russell's are the weakest player today. The exchange is back after this. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century. Right by you. Property and casualty coverages and render written and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available on all states. See policy for complete coverage details. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's not just Apple who's betting big on India lately. The iShares India 50 ETF is up 8% in the past month and 16% this year as investors seek alternatives to China in its growing market. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is hovering near the 42,000 mark amid speculation. The SEC will soon approve exchange-traded spot Bitcoin funds. And for its part, it's up 150% this year. Both of these are my next guests' screaming buys for 2024. Joining me now for more is Jan Van Eck. He is the CEO of Van Eck. And it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks. Just take me, we, we haven't had a chance to, to touch base about this person. When did you get into Bitcoin? Because this is a really big thing for you and for the fund, for the firm and everything. Yeah, 2017. Okay. So we were the first like ET, established ETF player to file for a Bitcoin-related ETF. your personal interest or what drove it? It was me, but you know, Listen, gold, you know, my dad started the firm um, with the first gold fund in the United States. And so store of value investing is our, in our DNA. And I said, oh, man, what's this Bitcoin thing? And I knew about it, you know, and I said, well, you've got to do the deep dive. So I listened to the podcast, read the white paper. And I said, no, this is going to be an accompaniment of gold. And, um, you know, when I try to talk to people who are so doubtful about Bitcoin, I said, listen, that was in 2017. It was $3,000 of Bitcoin. It's up 10x from now. It's just, why are you surprised? Like, you know, remember China? Like, if part of, large parts of China were completely undeveloped and uh, unindustrialized 30 years ago. But things change, right? And well, so I think Bitcoin is the obvious asset that is growing up in front of our eyes. I guess the two, uh, and I, I watch it and I, I concede that it actually has behaved remarkably like gold and some kind of store of value it, proxy. I can't quite figure put my finger on why, but you do think, well, there could always be some new thing that comes along. Bitcoin itself was innovative. There could be some new version of this down the road that takes people people's interest. And number two, the Jamie Dimon critique that it's all, there's so much nefarious stuff associated with it that there's still a regulatory risk that, you know, stymies it. There's a lot of political risk around it. Absolutely. But what I say as far as something else coming along, there's 50 million users of Bitcoin. So it's got network effects. 
Um, I think that's impossible for me to imagine some other, what I call it, internet store of value that's going to get leapfrog Bitcoin. Um, you know, so that's number one. As far as the you know, criminality and all that kind of stuff, you know, listen, I, I, don't throw the first stone if you're associated with the bank or any financial institution that's never been involved with criminals uh, in one shape or another. I'll leave it at that. Let me steer it back to safer territory. How about okay. this? For 2024 in particular, and yeah. some have been scratching their head a little bit at the behavior of Bitcoin and gold because they're saying, are they are they trading off the real rates? Are they, what is it that they are trading off of? And what tells you that you think they're, if this is your, your gut, that, that Bitcoin itself will outperform this? Well, it's, it's the macro, right? So you just, um, the stores of value that don't generate interest, which is why the investors like Warren Buffett don't, don't like them at all. But they behave really in relation to interest rates, like you said. That's the big cycle. And interest rates are headed down, um, directionally speaking. So the macro behind Bitcoin and gold are, are, are very strong. By the way, they, they kind of do perform similarly. They both peaked in 2021. They've both been rallying this year. Um, obviously, Bitcoin way more than gold for, for different uh, But reasons. now that Bitcoin's grown up, and I promise I'll move on to other topics, but you know, if you look at gold's performance in the 2010s, it was okay. That was all obviously the low interest rate era. If you think we're going back to kind of low rates, has Bitcoin already made the big gains and now kind of treading water? No, because it's also it's growing up. Like I said, it's like a child that's growing up. And so so, I, you know, you can argue about it being a bubble. And what I say is no bubble. So it bubbled in 2017, but then it hit all time highs in 2021. So there's nothing has ever been a bubble that then has outperformed itself. And so I fully expect in this cycle and you have this happening thing happening in mm -hmm. April, which is great technically for Bitcoin. I expect all-time highs in the next 12 months. So you guys are amongst those who have filed to have the first or one of many spot Bitcoin ETFs. How do you think they're going to approve it? Literally one at a time, firm by firm? Or is it going to be kind of a, a batch all at once? Your ticker, I have to say to your credit, is HODL. Yeah, so. we're very happy with the ticker, yeah. which we announced last week. But um, you know, I, I very much expect it will be all one day. Okay. Because that's what happened with the Ethereum futures. So because the you know, SEC decided to sort of put everything on hold on crypto, just depending on paperwork effectively, someone could have an unfair advantage. And they've said from a policy perspective, no, let everyone start at the same time. All right. Quickly, let me move through all the rest of this. You love <laughs> India still. You don't think that trades run its course. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about anything else in terms of our markets or, or your strong um, sense about how stocks will do here or if it's a mag seven or if it's a rotation, but kind of how else do you see the year playing out? So, I, I, you know, we have a macro as, as a firm. We think macro, meaning what are the big trends that are happening out in the world? And, uh, you know, we do a lot of emerging markets investing and, you know, China grew tremendously in the last 30 years, but that's over. And if you look at the next 10 years, however, there, you know, India is definitely the best structural story in the world. And, you know, to simplify that um, story is the two, there are two companies that effectively own the mobile phone market. So access to the internet. Mm. So like to oversimplify investing, if you just bet with the internet over the last 30 years, that's been great. True. Right. So just pick those two big India companies because they not just have the hardware, but they're building the software on top of it. So it's this Reliance's Geo and Bharti Airtel. Uh, you can buy them in ETF form. Um, you know, we have one, but it's, uh, I think it's a great structural story. I don't know about 24. Mm -hmm. I kind of use 24 in air quotes. Yeah. It's really, but high conviction over the next three years or 10 years uh, because the Indian market can be expensive, Kelly. So you just want to watch out for that. But still, from a longer term perspective, why not own that? All right. 
We'll leave it there. What were your predictions for 2023, by the way? Uh, <laughs> sideways market, okay. uh, which was pretty good. Um, <laughs> At actually, times it was it's great been true, yeah. <laughs> up until the beginning of November when right. the Fed did its pivot. Right. So. And now here, and then for 2024 for the U.S. market? You be think? invested. Just you know, the only time you want to be in cash is right before the Fed starts hiking. You know, we're, it's, it's, we partied way too much recently, so we need a pause. But I think otherwise, don't, don't try to time the markets. All right, Jan, always appreciate it. Thanks for coming in. Good Thanks, to see Kelly. you again, Jan Van Eck. We've got some more Fed speak to bring you. Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic telling Reuters the Fed can start cutting rates in the third quarter of next year. And he expects the inflation rate to be around 2.4 percent by year end of uh, 24. New York Fed's John Williams, of course, told our Steve Leisman earlier today it was premature to be even thinking about rate cuts. So this really uh, is all the more heightened as a result. We're looking for the market reaction. Not much of one yet. Dow still hanging on to a 19-point gain. Coming up, we'll speak to the head of one company with a unique view of the supply chain, both on the buyer's and seller's side. He works with retailers like Amazon, Macy's, and TJX and sees one specific category standing out from the pack. We'll tell you which one later on. Stay with us. You see where your business can go. To get there, you may need another 10 trucks. At Century Insurance, we put more than 115 years of industry experience to work to help protect you as you launch a new delivery service or expand into a new region and reach your business goals. Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages are underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Lawyers for the suspect accused of killing four University of Idaho students last year granted access by the judge to the off-campus home where the murders took place. Brian Kohlberger's defense team was at the house on Thursday and was expected to be back there today. The home is scheduled to be demolished next month. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. Kohlberger has pleaded not guilty. Lufthansa announced today that it will resume flights to Tel Aviv beginning January 8th. The German airline group stopped all flights into Israel after the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. The airline also resumed flights to Beirut today. And the number of homeless people in the U.S. has surged to the highest level on record. The Department of Housing and Urban Development said today the number reached 653,000 earlier this year as pandemic aid dropped off. HUD reports that rising housing costs, limited availability, and the opioid epidemic were also contributing factors. Kelly? Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Coming up, what one toy's journey can tell us about the health of the post-COVID global supply chain. Our team is tracking its every move. Jane Wells is at the Port of Los Angeles. Pippa Stevens at a logistics warehouse in New Jersey. Courtney Reagan is at the American Dream Mall, not too far from here. And Eunice Yoon is in China, where it all begins. Eunice? The journey starts here, in this factory in Northwest China, where one million of Basic Fund's iconic Care Bears are produced every month. In our latest check on supply chain health, we take you from factory floor to store shelf next. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Two years ago, when COVID was still raging, CNBC tracked the trepidatious journey of a stuffed Care Bear from the factory floor to store shelves. Now it's time to do it again, to get a check on how the global supply chain has or hasn't recovered, and a real-time read on the U.S. consumer. Our reporters are stationed thousands of miles apart at the most critical points of this perilous journey. Jane Wells is out on the West Coast at the Port of Los Angeles. Pippa Stevens is at an ELM Global Logistics Warehouse in southern New Jersey. And Courtney Reagan is at the American Dream Mall just outside Manhattan. Welcome to all of you. Jane, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, uh, the Ever Laurel there left China December 1st. It's being unloaded right now. And it is now faster and cheaper to ship through the West Coast. When I was here two years ago, there were 65 ships anchored offshore, waiting up to 10 days to get an appointment in here to be unloaded. Uh, now, uh, there's practically nothing. Ships are coming right in. Two years ago, shipping a con regular container cost $20,000. That's now back down to two grand or less. And then once they're unloaded, getting those containers are on a truck or a train or back to pre-pandemic levels. The average import container is sitting on our docks about three days before it leaves to go to its distribution center or storefront. That's pretty normal compared to the way it was back in 2019. You know, but the West Coast has maybe gone from too many ships to too few. This complex used to handle about half of all container cargo coming into America. That's now down to a third. There have been labor tensions. The Panama Canal got bigger, but the winds may be shifting back. The water levels are so low at the canal because of drought that many ships cannot get through to the East Coast now. And Kelly, you're starting to see cargo container, container cargo levels go down on the East Coast and rise again here in the West. Back to you. Jane, that is super interesting, and that's a, a big inflection point societally. We had so much coverage of the fact that traffic was migrating to East Coast ports, and you're saying now it's moving back out west. Yes, year for the full year so far, it's still down here up in the east, but starting in September, you started to see those monthly numbers ship. For the latest numbers from New York and New Jersey, container levels are down 6%. They are up 19% in L.A. and up 24% in Long Beach. All right, Jane, thanks for bringing that to us. We have Jane and the Care Bear. We appreciate it, Jane Wells. And with that Care Bear safely back on. This is no ad, by the way. I had to look up who makes the Care Bear, and it's uh, Cloudco Entertainment, so be that what it will. Uh, Pippa Stevens has the next leg of this little bear's trip. She's at a logistics company with a look at the state of trucking. What is the state of trucking these days, Pippa? Hey, Kelly, well, you heard from Jane how supply chain bottlenecks have eased at sea, and the same is true on land. It's now cheaper and faster for toy maker Basic Fun and its retail partners to move items like this Care Bear from the port to a warehouse like this one in Burlington, New Jersey, then to store shelves. That's good news for shippers, but bad news for the freight industry, which is also getting fewer orders. Spending has shifted from goods to experiences, so there are too many trucks and not enough demand. Contract freight volumes are down 6% year over year, and in the spot market, it's down nearly 40%. That's pushed down price per cargo. Intermodal mileage spot rates are $1.20 today, down from 2 bucks per mile in 2021. So essentially, truckers are transporting fewer things and getting paid less for what they do move. Executives call it a freight recession, and with the number of truckers, including Giant Yellow, going bankrupt. Diesel prices have pulled back, but it's part of the so-called fuel surcharge covered by the shipper. In other words, the manufacturer or retailer benefits 
from that drop. So the bottom line here is that transport costs are way down. But whether those savings are passed along to the consumer in the form of a cheaper Care Bear, Kelly, that's ultimately up to the retailer. But Pippa, that's interesting because we've heard a lot about how bad the freight and trucking recession is. Are there any glimmers of it getting better or it sounds like you're saying there's still too much excess capacity? From what I've heard, there is more pain to come in 2024, and we're likely to see more bankruptcies. Now, of course, the market got a little bit out of whack during the pandemic because when trucking rates were really high, we saw a lot of new companies come into the market to try and take advantage of that. And so what we're seeing is that the spot market especially is now declining. They are sort of the first ones to fall. They are more sensitive to market headwinds because, among other things, they don't have those fuel surcharge contracts, so they are covering that type of expense. So likely more bankruptcies there. But once again, this is a normalization of a supply chain that really, really got ahead of itself during the pandemic. And so while it's devastating for the trucking industry, it is a return to normal in terms of pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say it's pretty easy actually to kind of bring a trucking company online. A lot of people did. And now we're kind of right-sizing back to normal. Pippa, thanks. We appreciate it. Our Pippa Stevens. So the bear, and by the way, okay, so I said this is made by Cloud Co Entertainment, but basic fun... They explained it to me. Uh, 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 Boca Raton-based Florida company, by the way. Okay, the bear is off the truck. It's heading to store shelves. And the pricing picture, the pricing picture could look a lot. How much do these little bears cost? Courtney Reagan is at the American Dream Mall to find out. Courtney, what can you tell us? Hi, Kelly. So this Care Bear has traveled between 32 and 35 days from the time it left that factory in China where we saw Eunice to getting to a store like this, Toys R Us, at the American Dream Mall here in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Now, two years ago, that same journey took more than twice as long or more than two months. Transportation costs at the time made up nearly a quarter of the total cost of this bear in 2021. Now it's down to just 5%. Compared to October 21, it's really night and day. I mean, everything was out of balance, every step in the supply chain. We're just seeing um, less pressure on the manufacturing cost than the transportation cost, a little bit more pressure on other areas of uh, the supply chain. And also our customers are looking for more value. So we're being squeezed a little bit. Two years ago, Toymaker Basic Fund had to add transportation surcharges to retailers' bills. Those, they're now gone, but there's also now toy deflation. Seasonal discount, again, consumers generally looking for lower-priced toys. So you put that together, and retail prices are lower for this 14-inch Care Bear, around $15 from $17 to $20 in 2021. So that's 12 to 25% less, Kelly, much less than the 2% deflation that we're seeing in the overall overall toy category over that same time, according to the CPI index. Now, Foreman also says that the average spend of its toy consumer is going down. He says last Black Friday, the average spend was $36 per basic fun toy. This year on Black Friday, it was just under $22 per toy, which Foreman said is leading to more but smaller, less expensive toys under the Christmas tree. He said, look, there's a lot of deals on toys this year. Kelly? That's fascinating. That's a much bigger change than I expected. I thought maybe it's down a couple dollars, but Mm -hmm. that's a really significant drop, Courtney. Maybe it tells us why the message from retailers during earnings season seemed a lot more downbeat than the message on the economy overall and the way the stock market's acting these days. 
Potentially, and I think, look, we, we're, there's a lot of talk about inflation, deflation, where are we? And I think we really have to remember it's very category specific. We're still not seeing deflation in consumable food items, but we are in things like toys. And so, like I said, the overall toy category, prices are down about 2.2%. Um, if you look two years ago, this past November from two years prior, but for this particular toy, they're down much more than that, between 12 and 25%. So I think we just have to be careful because there are a lot of nuances when we're talking about pricing. And yeah. remember, retailers have the discretion, right? They pay basic fund a certain amount for the toy and they decide what they need that profit margin to be. I noticed today on Amazon, the Care is about $9.99. So Ooh. even on sale even further here today. Wow, $9.99 down from $25 a couple of years ago. That's crazy. I wonder if Baby Shark uh, discounts are as much. Courtney, thank you <laughs> very much. Bring that one home, maybe. Thanks, <laughs> Courtney Reagan, we appreciate it. Let's hear from a company directly involved in this process of connecting international buyers and sellers. United National Consumer Supplier helps retailers for, uh, find retailers overstocked goods or can track down hard-to-find products. They do that by connecting a vast network of suppliers handling all of these deliveries. They've got Macy's, BJ's, Marshall's, Walgreens, and even Amazon as customers. Let's bring in UNCS CEO Brett Rose. Brett, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Nice to see you again, Kelly. And sorry I didn't bring my care beer. <laughs> Why we've chosen the Care Bear to be <laughs> to make this journey? I noticed the company there we interviewed also had Tonka Truck, and I'd be curious about that one as well. What what can you tell us, Brett? Um, is the pulse? So when Courtney talks about toy deflation, is it everywhere? Are the hot items still holding price? Well, look, the hot item's always going to hold its price, but I think she was spot on in discussing the fact that it's really category based. We're two weeks off of a almost ten billion dollar Black Friday up 7.5% last year. We're two weeks off a $12.5 billion Cyber Monday. Retail is doing really well. And all things reported and everything is looking, this is going to be one of the greatest you know, holiday shopping but, seasons. Okay. This is the conundrum, exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, on the one hand, this Care Bear, you can get it for 10 bucks on Amazon from $25 a couple of years ago. And on the other hand, we're seeing the aggregate numbers still continuing to grow. So it seems like there's pressure maybe on each ticket item, but the consumers overall are spending more than last year. There's no denying, right? A consumer is really smart now because they walk in and they're shopping with this. It was 120 million consumers over Black Friday weekend that walked into the store. 200 million purchases were made online. It's a little hard to tell how many of those consumers finished the purchase on their smart device but walked in the stores. Listen, I, I think there's no, there's no denying the strength of Amazon and other online retailers, but brick and mortar is still alive and, and very well and thriving. Which items are in short supply and which are overstocked? Yeah, so it depends on the day of the week, right? There, there's a there's a short supply this year of seasonal. I think coming off the COVID cliff, retailers kept it very tight to the cuff. You see a lot of empty spaces on shelves with holiday merchandise, um, regardless of the holiday season, that, that the holiday that you celebrate, there's a shortage right now. There's no shortage of toys. There's a massive influx in the market. Why is there such an influx? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of inventory left over last year. Wall Street got really nervous and the street panicked when there were high inventory levels. So what happened was traditional brick and mortar retailers pulled back a lot of orders, which caused a huge glut in the market of bikes, um, toys, houseware, hardware, really higher levels than we saw in the past. But it was great because it's ended up spilling over into the off price market. And really, if there's one thing we learned, especially this holiday season, is lower prices. Care Bear is a great example. 
That's what drive the consumerism. So, you know, the the extra goods in the market drove the price down and stayed ahead of inflation, which translated to a great opportunity for the consumer, because despite higher prices everywhere, certain consumable goods stayed at or below the normal market. Quick last question. How is the arrival of, of sites like or apps like Shein and Timu affecting the supply chain and the retail kind of network that you've been involved with? It's not. There's always going to be a new HUD app, and some will absolutely have staying power and some won't. I think the one thing that a lot of brick-and-mortar retailers did during the pandemic is really morphed into the multi-channel experience. So now apps like that are competing with Walmart and Target and Marshalls and Ross and Five Below and Dollar Tree, who all now have a great online and app presence. That's interesting, though, because I would have thought the you know the sheer amount that people are ordering straight from the factory at places like Chien and Timu is a different experience that, you know, they run lean inventories. It, it seems like it would maybe undermine some of what a business like yours does with trying to connect goods to where they're most needed and things like that. There's always going to be a need to walk into a store. There's always going to be a need to walk into a mall. I, you know, my mom's a great consumer. She will never buy something offline that's coming directly from overseas. She wants to walk into the store and see it, and maybe she'll consummate the deal on, online on her phone, but ultimately she wants to know what she's buying. And I think that's what you give up a little bit when you use some of those apps. All right. Brett, we appreciate you joining us. It's fun to learn about your business. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. Brett Rose with UNCS. Still ahead, high-yield bonds saw their seventh week of inflows, according to B of A. That's the longest streak since September of 2020. And that, along with better credit technicals and an improvement in market breadth, moved the needle on the firm's bull bear indicator nearly a full point to 4.7 out of 10. 10 is extremely bullish and a sell signal, so we're not there yet. Bespoke, meanwhile, reports that 79% of S&P stocks are overbought as of Wednesday. That surpasses last December's reading. Remember that melt up. We're exactly a week away now from the one year anniversary of the Dow's 52 week low. We'll get a check on some of today's biggest movers next. Welcome back to the exchange markets right now. Dow's turned back to negative territory by 50 points. I was up about 50 at the highs. The S&P, though, which is down a quarter percent today, is still on track for its seventh straight weekly gain. That would be its longest win streak since 2017. Uh, the small caps today are pulling back, but outperforming the major indices, hitting a new 52-week high earlier on. And since late October, the Russell 2000 is up more than 21 percent versus the S&P's 15 percent gain. We mentioned that the 48 days from the Russell's 52-week low to its high marked the shortest turnaround time in the index's history. And there you can see the moves. A pretty extraordinary turn of events, again, taking a breather today. Elsewhere, financials are also on Underperforming the XLF on pace to break a six-day win streak, which was its longest in a couple of months. After hitting a new 52-week high yesterday, it's still on track for its sixth weekly gain in the past seven, all on the back of lower interest rates. Coming up, this name up nearly 43% over the past two months, touching a record high yesterday, and Bank of America says it's got more room to run. Those were generic clues. If you know it, you can still try to tweet me at KellyCNBC. We've got the analyst who sees more than 16% upside from here next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Quick news alert on DocuSign. Wall Street Journal reporting it's exploring a sale and what the journal says could be one of the largest leveraged buyouts in recent memory. DocuSign's market cap is more than $11 billion. The talks are reportedly in the early stages, but on this reporting, the shares are jumping about 10%. 
Meanwhile, every time you think this trade is over, the home builders keep rallying. Lennar, Horton, NVR, Pulte, Toll all hit fresh record highs yesterday, boosted by the Fed's dovish projections, although they're down today, granted. Lennar, the biggest laggard after issuing a weak first quarter outlook on profit margins. But my next guest says the home builders have more room to run. And the NAHB itself, by the way, is saying the half point drop in mortgage rates this month could bring more than two million buyers into the market. Joining me now is Rafe Jadrasich, B of A Securities Senior Home Builder Analyst. Rafe, thank you for coming in. It's good to see you. Welcome. Great. Thanks, Kelly. So where do we begin? You know, is this the tippy top of of the trend now that the Fed pivot is fully priced in or, you know, does history suggest the builders still have room to run? Yeah. So so we we think that um, the value, they still have room to run Mm -hmm. from these levels. Like home builders have done really well this year, but a lot of that as a reflection of where we started the year the valuations were really depressed. Yeah. We started the year, a lot of the home builders were trading at one times their book value. Right. If you look at the the, um, the increase of, of, of the stock prices this year, that's still putting us in the range of where they've traded historically, only really a slight, um, a slightly above the, the, the long-term average. Where um, are we on valuation book value, for instance, now versus historicals? Yeah, so the, the long-term average is probably around 1.6 times. Um, we're only at 1.7, 1.8 times, even after that rally. And that's with a backdrop of stronger than normal fundamentals. So that's, we think, ROEs next year, return on equity, right. will actually be well above cost of capital, um, which tells you that, that the, the re-rating could continue as we go into next year. Although when you say to me that they're already trading above their historical average book value, I go, well, then they're fully valued. But maybe to your point, in these kinds of environments where they can generate that kind of earnings power, then they should justify to trade at what, two times? We think it closer, closer to two times. And I think there's a few factors here. The first is the fundamental backdrop for the housing market is getting better, um, partially supported by, by an outlook for lower mortgage rates next year. The second is a lot of the home builders have shifted more and more of their business towards an asset light model mm. where they're generating a lot more cash. They're getting they're holding, rid of land, stuff like that. Right. They're, they're buying land through option contracts, which mm. increases their return on equity and then, and then cash flow. That's freeing up cash that, that they can use to return to, to shareholders. Um, and then we're going into next year again. Homebuilders have record low debt to debt to capital ratios, so extremely sh- strong balance sheets. Again, leaving a lot more cash that they can be returned to cash. It's interesting because one of the the headwinds th- that I like to think about is well, could lower interest rates while they're helping right now actually help? reverse the market away from the builders more towards the existing home sales market where there's been no inventory at all and therefore kind of take some of the steam out of the trade? Right. It's a a great question when we think a lot about, um, to to your point, existing home inventory is historically tight. And that's partially why we've seen new home demand hold up a lot better than than existing home sales, um, even as, as interest rates have stayed high. Um, our view is that the incremental supply that potentially gets created from people listing their houses to take advantage of lower mortgage rates um, gets more than offset by, by lower demand, uh, but by higher demand. Um, a, a good example would be just every 100 basis points decline that we see in, in, in mortgage rates uh, increases uh, or lowers the, the potential mortgage payment by $300 for the average prospective home buyer. Interesting. So you're going to have more renters that are going to enter the, the housing market as rates come down. So more more demand than, than the actual incremental supply that's coming on. And so you, you kind of look at them favorably as a group, but are there any in particular that if people want to say, well, I don't know about the group, but maybe give me one or two you think could especially outperform? Yeah, the, the two that stand out to us, would be, the first is, is Pulte Group. Um, one, they're, they're shifting a lot more to an option model, more asset light. 
And then the second is all of their uh, excess cash flow, they're, they're buying back uh, shares with. So we think they have a big re-rating opportunity as they shift more of this asset light model. And then the second is, is Toll Brothers. Um, they trade a really cheap valuation relative to the group, despite a return on equity outlook that, that, that's better than average. Is there any way in which this option light model, or, or as you put it earlier, using options to purchase land or have the, the, that possibility, is there any way this could backfire? Like, what would have to go wrong in which they all look back and go, well, ah, that was the wrong thing to do? So there is a trade-off from, from using more options. The, the margins are a little bit lower. You have, you have to um, compensate the, the land developer for holding on to, to the options longer. Um, so there, there is a price trade-off, but the net improvement in return on inventory, because you own the land for a lot shorter period of time, generally offsets the, 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 the higher cost of, of, of that lot. What would you say are your biggest concerns, either for the group as a whole, or are there a couple of names that you think are a little bit more weakly positioned? So, of course, macro is always a risk, right? So these, these clearly are soft landing winners, as that narrative has, has shifted in the market. We've seen the, the, the home builder trade work. Um, so there's always macro risk. If there's no landing and rates go back up, that, that could be a challenge. Um, and then from, you know, when you think about the industry perspective, capital allocation is really important from here. Uh, you have record large cash, cash positions. If home builders just have that sit on their balance sheet, that actually drags their return on equity as you go into next year. Or if they buy too much land, they don't buy back enough stock. Um, they, Should they all just buy back more shares or do something else with that capital? It, it depends on what return they think they can get on, on, on land. They, you don't want home builders stretching their underwriting uh, standards or, or reducing their underwriting standards um, to, to make you know, land purchases pencil out. You'd prefer as long as they can underwrite land to over 20% return, hmm. uh, they should buy more land. And any land, uh, any uh, cash beyond that should then go into share repurchases. Fascinating. You've jumped into a lot, uh, biting yeah. up in, into this space. Rafe, thanks for joining us so much to talk about it. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. Rafe Jadrasich with Bank of America. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. You see where your business can go. To get there, you may need another 10 trucks. At Century Insurance, we put more than 115 years of industry experience to work to help protect you as you launch a new delivery service or expand into a new region and reach your business goals. Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details.